Uh, let me say first, before we jump in, how humbled I am uh, and honored with the video earlier um, and a little bit embarrassed. Um, I, I, Leslie, I don't know where Leslie found, I don't know how you got those videos of us from college, but um, I will get you back for that. Um, no, I love you guys, and I've told you before, this is the truth. Um, in, in almost 20 years of ministry, this has been the most fun that I have ever had uh, serving the Lord. And you are so fun to serve Jesus with. And I just I love you. And thank you for the honor and privilege of being one of your pastors. So there's a popular thinking that uh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of war and wrath and violence. While the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy and compassion. And it's almost as if when we take our Bibles and we look at uh, you know, this half of the, of the book, that we see one God. And when we look at this half of the book, we see a whole different God. And what I want us to see in the book of Jonah today is that that's just not true. God is consistent from cover to cover. His character is unchanging. Um, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's a pretty simple way, actually, to remedy that false thinking that the Old Testament God is um, full of wrath and, and, and vengeance and the New Testament God is loving and gracious. There's a pretty simple way to fix it. It's this complicated thing called reading the Bible. As you read, what you find and discover is that God is the same. He's the same God. When you read the Old Testament, you see Him, him to be loving beyond belief. And when you see the New Testament, you see Jesus preaching judgment. So God is the same all through the Scriptures. He is both kind and loving and yet truthful and full of justice. And yes, a God of Wrath, But the book of Jonah, ironically enough, found right near the end of the Old Testament, supposed this section of God's wrath and anger. The whole book is built on the premise of God's prophet actually being upset that God is, is so loving. The half of the book that supposedly presents God as being wrathful and angry and this ogre, um, this book in particular is Jonah actually upset that God is so kind. And God is so merciful. So the story of Jonah is, um, is a beautiful story. We're, we're three chapters in and now beginning uh, the fourth chapter. I think one of our issues is that we often confuse judgment with revenge. And uh, allow me to illustrate this. Yesterday I celebrated with uh, a handful of um, old people. <laughs> My 20-year high school reunion. Isn't that crazy? Uh, we did a 20-year high school reunion party, and it was just fun to gather with, uh, with a handful of, of my friends. But I was reminded that I'm older than I think I am. Um, but I remember actually coming to this place when it was a movie theater. Anybody come here as a, when it was a movie theater? So in 1995, there was a premiere thriller that came out, GoldenEye. James Bond. <clears throat> Who's a James Bond fan? Don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. All right, shame on you. <laughs> 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 uh, 
James Bond's a classic movies, right? And Golden Eye is one of my favorites. Pierce Brosnan, the, the, the heartthrob that he is. The movie ends with this epic scene. There was this massive lake that receded to reveal a huge concrete bowl and some kind of antenna thing is suspended by these guy wires. And at the bottom of the antenna is this weird spire, kind of an unusual looking point that kind of goes down into the concrete bowl. But it's suspended maybe 200 plus feet above this huge concrete bowl. I don't know what to call it. And Pierce Brosnan, or James Bond, is fighting for his life with the bad guy. And you know how it goes. They, they get to the spot where that little point drops, and they're, they're fighting, and James Bond falls somehow, and he's holding on to the end of a ladder, and he's just barely there, and the bad guy makes his way down the ladder and starts stepping on his fingers as Bond is holding on. And somehow, the tables turn, and James Bond gets control of the situation. Now, let's be honest. At the end of a James Bond movie, do you want the bad guy to be arrested and put on trial and to go to jail? Be honest. Is that what you want? No. What do you want? What do you want to happen to the bad guy? You want him to die. Let's just be really honest. And how do you want him to die? Do you want him to um, choke on a hot dog at the fall festival? No. You want him to die slowly and painfully, right? Well, the reason this scene comes to my mind is because that's what unfolds. So as James Bond's about to die, the table's turn, and somehow or another, he's holding the bad guy's ankle, and the bad guy's dangling 200-plus feet above, uh, above this huge concrete bowl, right? And uh, Bond, being the uh, British gentleman that he is, he considers pulling him up and rescuing him. Well, there's a little bit of a mouthy exchange, and Bond just lets him go. And so the bad guy falls to his feet, falls to his, what we would presume, his death. Now, I'm no medical doctor, but I would imagine if you fall upside down 200 plus feet onto a concrete bowl, you would die, right? Does he die? No, he does not die. As he's lying there, well, before that, what, I, what I'm amazed by in the movie is that as Bond lets go, the camera angles in 1995, the cinematography is incredible, right? <laughs> so you've got this wide-angle camera, and the guy's falling, ah, and then you have a camera angle from above, and you're looking down at him, he's like, ah, you have the angle from underneath, and here he is approaching, ah, you know, all those angles, right? And then, boom, he hits the bottom. Everybody in the theater is like, we're all excited. Well, then James Bond gets up. He jumps onto that hanging part of a helicopter. You know, the part that all the hero always grabs, the hanging part. And he goes off in the helicopter. The satellite or the antenna explodes in this massive explosion. And that pointy spear drops. And again, the camera angles. And, uh, and here it comes, right, right on top of the bad guy. And it's pretty graphic display, but it pierces straight through him. Now, why, what, the amazing thing that happened in the moment in that theater, at the end of that movie, at that climactic moment, what happens? 
People stand in applause, right? Everybody's so happy the bad guy died in such a terrible way. Why is that? We don't really want justice. We want vengeance. And that's the reality here is that we have confused uh, revenge with justice. And to be clear, God never fails in making that distinction. God is just, but he is not vengeful. So Jonah is the story of the rescuing mercy of God and the rebellious heart of a reluctant prophet. God shows his, his rescuing mercy in a variety of ways. You know, we've walked through this story, but he shows his mercy to the city of Nineveh by sending a prophet, Jonah. So he sends Jonah. Well, Jonah disobeys. So now God shows his rescuing mercy by sending a storm. Maybe Jonah will turn the boat around and come back. No, he doesn't. God sends a, a, a captain to come down into the boat where Jonah's asleep and say, hey, would, would you just pray to your God? Jonah doesn't pray. They throw him overboard. God sends a fish to swallow him up. And in chapter 2, finally, Jonah prays a prayer of repentance. Jonah goes and God shows his mercy to Nineveh by preaching a message, albeit a short message and a message of judgment. But it's a message. Forty days and you'll be overthrown. And God is giving the city a chance to repent. And God shows his mercy that in that when the king and the peasant alike turn to God in repentance, he relents from his wrath and chooses not to destroy the city. And now we turn to chapter four. So as we open chapter four, we see that God's merciful pursuit of Jonah isn't just to get him to obey. God does not just want slaves. I want you to hear that again. God does not just want slaves. He's after a deeper kind of obedience. God's chief concern is not just that we do what he wants, but that we actually want what he wants. That's a bigger, deeper kind of transformation. So in God's mercy, he's now going to go after Jonah's heart. God's a good father and he lovingly disciplines his children. He wants more than our reluctant or begrudging obedience. Just like we as parents, we want more for our children than their reluctant obedience. You know, when when I ask my children to do something and they go, fine. That's not enough for me. Because I love them and and I'm about changing their heart, not just changing their behavior. And that's the way our God works. So let's turn our attention to Jonah chapter 4. And, um, and let's stand together as we read. I want to pick up in the last verse of chapter 3. So hopefully you found your place in Jonah now. The last verse of chapter 3. And we'll read all of chapter 4. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would happen, what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Lord, um, be our teacher today. Holy Spirit, we need you, as Gwen said earlier, we need you to open our eyes, open our ears. Open our hearts to see and hear, understand and believe all that we see and read today. Show us who you are. Show us who we need to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we focus on the scriptures, we first want to explore this passage um, and see what it would reveal to us about our God. Again, um, every time we look at this book, it's intended to show us who God is. So when we read, the first questions we should ask is, what does this tell me about God? And then we look into it again as we look into maybe a mirror and we see maybe what God would want to reveal to us about who we are. The book of James says that the word of God is like a mirror and uses the illustration of uh, a fool is, is a man who looks into it sees who he is, and walks away unchanged. So let's don't be fools today. Let's see who God is. Let's look again and see who we are. And let's be resolved to walk away changed by the Spirit of God. So the fourth chapter of Jonah is a very unusual ending to the story. A classic story begins with character development, the development of a plot, Usually some kind of problem is developed and then there's a massive climax and then there's resolution, the end. Well, if that's the outline for a story, then Jonah should have ended in chapter 3, right? Should have ended right there where, God, where it says God relented and did not do what he said he was going to do, the end. But God's not finished working because there's still work to do. You know, he's done work in getting Jonah to do what he said. He's done work with Nineveh and getting them to repent of their sin. But now there's work to do on 
Jonah's heart. So what we're going to talk about today is the fact that God knows our hearts. That's one of the deepest realities that we need to get a grip on. But before we get there, um, I, want to, I want to ask, what does this teach us about God? This chapter is really wrapped up with God asking two questions. He's asking Jonah these two questions. It's kind of a prayer argument, if you will. I don't know if you've ever argued with God in prayer, but that's what we're seeing here with Jonah is he's sort of arguing with God. I'm just mad about this. I knew this is what you were going to do. I'd rather just die. And God's like, I mean, is it right for you to be angry? I mean, he's just they're just having this honest banter. You see a lot of this in the Psalms. And um, even though the content's maybe not great of Jonah's prayer, the honesty is. And I want to encourage you that if your prayers are not gut level honest with God, um, they need to be. When we talk to God, we don't need to put on a pretty face and act like everything's good. Um, We need to be honest. The reality is he knows anyway, right? So when we talk to him, let's just talk. Let's tell him how we feel. He already knows our hearts. But the two questions that God asks Jonah are these. The first one is this. Do you have a right to be angry? In essence, that's what God is asking Jonah. Do you have a right to be angry? And the second question God asked is the very last question. It's weird. It's unanswered. But in essence, the question is this. God is asking Jonah, do I, God, do I have a right to be merciful? God says to Jonah, do I have a right to be merciful? The interesting aspect of these two questions around which this whole chapter is built is, who is God here? Who's God? And I think that's a bigger point sort of on the background is Jonah, I mean, do you even have a right to be angry? Are you God? Do I not have a right to be merciful? I mean, are you God? That's sort of at the background of what's going on here. But these two questions are sort of the the umbrella that all of the conversation happens underneath. So the first thing I think we can pull out of this text is this. Jonah's angry. We want to think about why is he angry. And it's because of this. Number one, God is merciful to those people. I think, Steve and Lou, did we have a shirt at some point about Celebrate Recovery that said, I'm, I'm one of those people. I think that's awesome. I'm one of those people. Um, the reality that Jonah is so mad about is that God is merciful to, quote, those people. We're going to dig into what that means, but I just want you to connect the dots here. The very last verse of chapter 3 says that when God saw that they repented, he relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then the very next words are, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. So if you were to circle it in your Bible, what is it that made Jonah so mad? If you circled it and drew a line to whatever, you would, you would have to connect the line back to God relenting. That God did not destroy them. 
So the reality here for Jonah is that he is angry that God is merciful to those people. Jonah was angry because he did not approve. Can you imagine putting yourself in the seat of judgment over what God does? The reality is most of us don't have to imagine it. We think that way and feel that way a lot. We look at what God does and we say, I can't believe you would do that. From anything to God forgiving and welcoming people that we think he shouldn't. To even God allowing sickness. Allowing certain kinds of evil or things to happen. We sometimes sit in judgment like Jonah. Angry or upset. Saying, I can't believe you would do that. We sit in judgment over God. And in this setting, Jonah is angry because he does not approve of God being merciful to those people. So I want to ask you, are there any of those people in your life? And I think we need to dig into this because this is a big theme in the book of Jonah. And it's a, it's a reality. Pop quiz. This reminds me. I, I, took, uh, I played Bible trivia one time. Uh, we were playing a game. This is years and years ago, but I thought about it as I finished the chapter, finished this book. One of the questions in Bible trivia was, which book of the Bible ends this way? And much cattle. And I remember going, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> it's right here. There it is, right? Uh, so pop quiz for you. Bible trivia. What are Jonah's first words that he speaks in this book? What are the first words that he speaks? It's an open book quiz. You can, you can look. You can go. Right? You can go look. What are the first words he actually speaks? Now, we know that God said go, and Jonah, with his body, says no. But he doesn't speak those words. The first words he speaks are, somebody say it. Come on. I am a Hebrew. Isn't that amazing? In the middle of a storm, Jonah's asked, hey man, what's the problem? Why would there be a storm here? What did you do? And his answer is, I'm a Hebrew. You know, his nationalistic elitism is a big part of his problem. And I don't know if we see that. But I'm going to tell you, um, it's a problem for most of us in this room and most of us in especially our culture. In America, we are prouder to fly our American flag than we are to talk about Christ. We are prouder to say, I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. Prouder than we are to say, Jesus Christ is my king. And I want to tell us that when our nationalistic elitism keeps us from going to those people, we're in sin. I love um, that we have missionaries right now on the ground mingling with Muslims who are protesting in their country, who are 
uh, seated out in, in the middle of a protest. I mean, Leban, Lebanese flags are flying, lots of protest action going on. And we've got people right there saying, you know what? Jesus is king. Amen. Jesus is king. They're not there to say, you should do it the way we do it in America. Because that's not the fix. Jesus is king. And I wonder if our national elitism keeps us from being missional. I don't know if you remember, I do, when the planes hit the Twin Towers. In 2001, September 2001, I remember the immediate sentiment of anger and hatred for a particular people group. Anyone remember that? It's a very real thing. Jonah is experiencing the exact same kind of prejudice. And it's not that we shouldn't be anti-evil. We should be anti-evil. But remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual world, the, the, the powers and principalities. We actually are seeking to see those people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And even when they are putting on a front as our enemy, our mission, we have a greater kingdom. We have a greater kingdom. We are, we are Christians first. Americans somewhere down the line. And I want to challenge you. I want to call us as Americans, as people, as people of the cross to repent of that national elitism and not let us keep us from mission. That's not the only kind of prejudice we see in this text. We see a prejudice, a moral prejudice, a prejudice toward sinners. You see, the people of Nineveh, they were, quote, worse sinners than Jonah. And somehow or another, Jonah had it in his mind that he deserved the grace of God. and They did not. Um. Jesus perfectly shows us God's unbiased mercy. So will you take your Bibles with me and let's just walk through a few chapters in the New Testament just a little bit. I want you just to put your fingers and your eyes in your Bible where we're going. I want you to go to the Gospel of Luke. We just preached through the Gospel of Luke last year. But Luke chapter 5 um, I just want you to find it in your Bible. We're not going to read it, but I do want you to put your fingers there because it would be great for you to go back and read later. Here's what happens. In Luke 5, Jesus is calling His disciples. And uh, this is a famous moment when Jesus brings them together and He says... Uh, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. It's that, that famous scene, right? This is in Matthew 4. It's also here in Luke 5. Yeah, you, you've caught a lot of fish. You've seen me work a miracle. Don't be afraid. We're not going to be catching fish anymore. We're going to be catching men. Now, don't miss the transition. Who's the first man they reel into the boat? Who's next? <laughs> Look at it. They get out of the boat. They follow him. And the very first place they go, who comes? A leper. 
Don't miss it. This is a great little teaching point that's actually not like pop out of the text at you. Don't miss it. Jesus says, you're going to be catching men. And I wonder if they thought, yeah, we're going to we're going to get like some of the best people to join our team. And Jesus goes, yeah, no, you're actually going to get those people. (laughs) And the very first one is one covered in leprous oozing sores. And when you read this text, it's beautiful that Jesus puts his hands on him. Jesus touches the untouchable. And let's don't miss it. This is, he's those people. I can imagine the disciples standing around like, are you serious? Like this is, this is, well, I mean, we need to toss this one back. Like (laughs) this is a catch and release, right, Jesus? No, no, we're fishing for men. And I want to teach you right out the gate that we're fishing for those people. I want you to skip over this all through this gospel, but in Luke 7 in particular, um, there was a, a Pharisee named Simon that thought he thought a lot of himself too, like Jonah. He thought he was pretty special. And uh, so he invites Jesus over for dinner. They're having a nice dinner, talking politics and power and prestige, having this great conversation. And then right in the middle of this formal fancy dinner, this woman barges in and she's sort of ragtag and she comes in and she just is weeping and kind of making a lot of racket. And she falls at Jesus feet and she's crying and she's anointing him and she's just worshiping him because he has just just rescued her life. And the Pharisee, Simon, he's thinking to himself, if Jesus, verse 39, chapter seven, verse 39 He says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. Look, look, look. She's one of those people, right? What's intrinsic in that? What's behind that? When when he looks down at her and says, if he knows, if he knew, if he were a prophet, he would know that she's, she's one of those. What does he mean? He means, I'm not one of those. I'm, she's here, I'm here. Jesus, you should be up here with me. Flip over a few more pages. Luke 19. Um, it's one of the best examples of this, but they're all through the Gospels because Jesus is the perfect example of how, Jesus, how God doesn't show favoritism. God's mercy Extends to all. It's not to just to you, not just to America. We don't have an American God. We, we know that. We have a God of the whole world, of all nations. He's not American. He's not white. He's a God for everyone. And He's merciful to everyone. Luke 19, Jesus makes another radical choice. He's walking through the city and everybody's all about Jesus. There's a big crowd gathered around. There's one guy in particular who actually thinks he doesn't deserve to be with Jesus because he knows he's a sinner, but he wants to see him because, you know, he's heard Jesus is coming to town. I want to see him. And so little Zacchaeus climbs up in a sycamore tree and uh, he's looking to see Jesus and Jesus sees him. And Jesus goes to Zacchaeus, who is the worst thief tax collector in the world. He's like the worst IRS agent, right? The worst one. Uh, Constantly stealing, picking everybody's pockets. 
And Jesus, holy Jesus, goes and says, I'm coming to your house for dinner. What was the, what was the response? I wonder, Luke 19. Look at verse 7. No, verse 6. No, it is verse 7. Jesus said in verse 6, he hurried, and came, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. In verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. And what did they say? He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Do you see that prejudice, that separation? Look at, look at who he is. I can't believe Jesus would go to those people. And the implication there is, I'm not one of those people. I'm not a sinner. This is all through the Bible, especially the New Testament. You remember the Pharisee who prayed, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that man. You remember that? That's ridiculous. What we should see in the book of Jonah is that we are those people. And that prejudice of any kind is not of God. Now, I've mentioned nationalistic prejudice. I've mentioned moral prejudice that I think I'm better than somebody else. It's one of the reasons I said last week, I think, that I love to go to the jail because it's a good reminder to me that I'm no better than any of those men. I love to just go and talk with those men because I get to sit and just be with them. And I need that reminder. Sometimes the Lord needs to remind me, you're no better. One wrong move, that's you. You're no better. I need that. You need that. But let me tell you another one. It's just, it's just in us. And it's, it's ugly. We don't like to talk about it, but here it is. There's racial prejudice. There's racial prejudice, especially here where we live. And I think we like to deny it. We like to pretend it's not real. We like to think, I'm not, I'm not that way. But I think deep down, there's some of that. Maybe. And I just want to open your heart. I want you to, you to ask God, Lord, if, if there's some kind of racial prejudice in me, would you expose it and change it? Can we just say that that is not honoring to Jesus? To look at someone um, of a different skin color or a different ethnicity or someone who speaks a different language or whatever it may be and somehow or another to think poorly of them, lesser of them. Can we just... And I'm asking for a little amen here, church. So can we just say that does not honor Jesus? Amen. Okay. Then if we agree with God that He has made all people in His image, Ninevites, Jews, black, white, Asian, and down the line, He has made all people in His image beautiful, People whom he wants their worship. He wants them in his family. If that's the case, and we know that it is, truthfully, theologically, then let's dig out those seeds of prejudice and get rid of them. In Jesus' name. When it surfaces, let's confess it. Say, I don't know what in the world. I don't get it. This, this week, I'm going to be really honest. This week, uh, we had a really upfront conversation with my children. Um, 
it was it was wild. We were driving home. It was late at night, and uh, we're, we're on our way home. And there's an ambulance in front of us, and uh, the lights are on inside the ambulance. Somebody's been taken, being taken somewhere, and uh, the I, the person in the ambulance was of a really dark skin tone, right? And my daughter behind me, Reagan, she just she has no brain mouth filter, and she's just like, Daddy. That lady's black, really loud. And it was kind of awkward. I was like, why do, you, why do you say that? And she brought it up and, and she was like, I don't know. She's just, she's, she's not like us. We had a great conversation that night before bed, reading through Jonah, talking about Jonah, about prejudice. And we got to talk to her about, you know, it doesn't matter what pe- people's skin color is. God's made them in his image, just like he's made us. We're no better than them. And we get to be honest with our children and raise them, hopefully in a world, come on, let's dream a little bit, hopefully in a world where this is not a huge problem. We cannot let these prejudices keep us from the mission of God. And I think so often we let weird fears or whatever it may be that are rooted in prejudice keep us from extending God's mercy to those people. And whatever it may be for you, nationalistic, racial, moralistic prejudice, whatever it is today, let's let's be done with it. Let's repent of that. Be done with it and pursue the kind of mercy that God extends to all people. Secondly, this is where we'll spend just a few minutes. God sees your heart. God sees your heart. Jonah's heart surfaces here in chapter 4, and it's the reason why we actually have a chapter 4, is because God wants to be gracious and merciful to a wayward disciple, a wayward child. And I'm thankful for His mercy to me in, in times like these, in, my, in chapter 4's in my life. God uses um, some object lessons. Jonah goes out on a hillside, builds himself a little tent, and he's there watching. Let's just see what's in his heart, okay? He's angry because he wants vengeance. God is giving mercy, and he's angry about it. So he's going to wait out the 40 days just to watch and see. Maybe they're going to screw it up. Maybe Nineveh will go back to their wicked ways, and God will destroy them after all, and it'll be great. I mean, Jonah is literally sitting out there with popcorn waiting For destruction to happen. Well, God, in His mercy, appoints a plant to come up and give a little shade. I mean, it's a miracle, right? God brings this huge plant. And Jonah's like, this is amazing. I love this plant. The Bible says he's exceedingly glad. That's meant to be a parallel to his exceeding anger at the beginning of this chapter. And now because of a silly plant that came up overnight, he's exceedingly glad. Right? Well, then God appoints. And let's don't miss the sovereignty of God here and how, how in control he is. That word God appoints. God appoints. God is repeated in this book, especially here. God appoints a worm in the middle of the next night to come in and eat up the plant. And that plant for which he was exceedingly glad has now withered and is no longer providing him with shade and comfort. And now, Jonah's exceedingly angry. He's angry enough he wants to die. God sends an east wind. And if you've been in the desert, an east wind is not pleasant. Jonah's sitting out 
in the east wind, bitter as all get out. And then the Lord begins to, uh, to talk to him. And the Lord paints a contrast between God's heart and Jonah's heart. And he says, Jonah, you pity the plant. That's, you have mercy on the plant for which you didn't labor. You didn't make it grow. It came up in a night and perished in a night. There are lots of things we could talk about here, but here's the deal. Jonah, are you kidding me? You're, you have mercy and pity on this plant. And the contrast now is this. Should I not pity these people? God sees our hearts. And oftentimes we, we want to say, like children do, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's kind of at the heart of what Jonah's saying here. It's not fair, God, that you'd forgive them. They need justice. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I just want to bring it to a close now. Most of the time, mercy comes at the expense of judgment, of justice. If mercy comes to you, it's at the expense of justice. You deserved a certain thing, but someone was merciful and you did not get what you deserved. Mercy comes at the expense of judgment, of justice. But in the case of the gospel, and listen, I need you to hear me, okay? This is the last bit. I want you to hear this. In the case of Jesus Christ... Mercy doesn't come at the expense of judgment, of justice. It comes through justice. God extends mercy through Jesus Christ by executing His justice in full on Jesus Christ. How is God able to look at Nineveh and pass over their sins? The Bible answers this question for us in the book of Romans, chapter 3. I want to read this as we finish. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's Romans 3, 23 and 24. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That means a substitution sacrifice. God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by His blood for us to be received by faith. Why? He did this to show His righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, listen, he had passed over former sins. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how God can pass over the sins of Nineveh. Is God takes their sin packages them all up, brings them ahead in time, and nails them to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the way that God is able to be both just, He does not overlook it, He doesn't sweep it under the rug. Sin is ultimately paid for. It's paid for by Christ. He's both just and the one who justifies. Meaning, He's able to look at evil people like Nineveh, those people, and say to them, you're forgiven. 
He's just and the one who justifies. And here's the beautiful truth. This is number three. God is merciful in that way to anyone who would trust Christ. God is merciful to anyone who trusts Christ. Just as the sins of Nineveh were brought forward in time and nailed to the cross of Jesus. My sins and your sins are carried backward in time and nailed to the cross of Jesus. The book of Galatians actually says that, literally says that, that everything the law said that was against me was taken like a letter and nailed with Christ to his cross. Isn't that beautiful? Are you thankful, church, that God has taken your sins and nailed them to the cross of Jesus Christ? Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will ever commit, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, has been taken to the cross and Jesus has been your propitiation. So today, let's put our whole faith in Jesus. Let's repent of our sin. Let's trust in Christ that he's not only want to be merciful to us, he wants to be merciful through us and not to any particular sect of people, but to all people, including those people. Whoever those people are in your life, receive God's mercy and joyfully give it away.